Welcome to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Today I'm speaking with Sophie Hutchinson, Director of Sustainability at ADP Consulting. Sophie is originally from the UK and is passionate about bringing together human-centred design together with environmental sustainability best practice. Sophie is an accredited professional in both the Green Star and Wellbuilding Standard and is an advocate for regenerative practice and the Living Building Challenge, recently supporting the ADP services team in the design of Burwood Brickworks, the only Living Building Challenge retail project in the world. Sophie is invested in delivering projects that are socially just, culturally rich and ecologically restorative. And in our conversation today, she discusses the idea of well-being as the second wave of sustainability. Sophie also shares her perspective on policymaking and the politics around climate change, as well as the environmental leaders that inspire her passion for the earth. Sophie, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I thought I would start our conversation today by asking you a bit about your career journey so far. I'm interested to know what led you to working in sustainability and if you can tell me a little bit about your career journey up to your current role. Sure, of course. Well, as somebody that grew up in the countryside, I have always loved nature. And so I decided um, fairly early on that sustainability was not only the future, but the future for me as well. So at university stage, I was very fortunate to get into a great course at the London School of Economics called Environmental Policy, which was all about kind of the politics, the economics, the um, policy making all about climate change. So and I absolutely loved that course. I felt like it gave me a really good broad understanding of sustainability and its um, implications and also um, what it means for the industry. So with that, I got my very first job was uh, into sustainability recruitment, a bit strange, but then very quickly hopped into sustainability consulting. Um, I loved sustainability consulting. I felt like it gave me a real breadth to sustainability. So I was working on projects that would do with sustainable procurement, energy auditing, carbon footprinting. However, it wasn't until my next job uh, when I joined as a sustainability manager and later as the head of sustainability for a construction company that I really got exposure to sustainability within the built environment 
and really got an understanding, I guess, of when you try and make impacts uh, within the built environment that they really do can affect change within sustainability. Obviously, we know so many of 23% of our carbon emissions do come from the built environment. So I moved into that industry. So that was construction side. Um, it had been a lifelong dream of mine to move to Australia. So I did that in 2014. And I did a brief uh, contracting stint before joining ADP fairly soon after my move here. I actually joined as a temporary ESD consultant with no local experience and also pretty much no visa. I was on the backpack of visa. And I'm actually really proud to say that I've stayed. Um, and over the last five and a half years, I've worked my way up to being a sustainability director. So through the roles of being um, team lead and associate and now into my director role. So I kind of really, I think, liked the fact that, you know, I've, I've stayed and worked hard and learned a, a huge amount uh, through that just you know, by staking, sticking with ADP. And as you said, you are now Director of Sustainability at ADP Consulting and you are a Fellow of the Centre for Sustainability Leadership and you're also selected as a young leader by the UK Green Building Council. I'm wondering what does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader and how are you using your agency to affect change? Mm-hmm. Um, the term to me, sustainability leadership, is great work because it's very, it's very broad and encompasses um, many different things. Uh, to be a sustainability leader, there's obviously a, you know there's a strong technical element to it. There is especially when applying it to the built environment. So it really is understanding what best practice looks like and applying that in the best way that you possibly can. But there's also, um, to me, there's a strong social element to it as well. For me, I really do see my role being understanding the technical element of it, but um, really being a key communicator as well. So the social side to it, being able to build relationships, build trust and get that word out of sustainability to the the wider market. So um, many different kind of forms within that. And the way in which I'm, I guess, using my agency, I've been very grateful of the platform that I've been given and I'm really trying to use it now the best use I can. On a small scale, I think day to day, we always try to talk to our clients about what sustainability best practice might mean, always try and push that dial a little bit. So right the way through from the micro decisions in day to day meetings, right the way through to um, big presentations and being an advocate for change and trying to do some thought leadership pieces or trying to educate the industry through workshops. So um, it's fairly, fairly broad in that sense as well, but hopefully just, you know, doing everything that you can and keep going actually on a a day-to-day fashion. I'd like to talk about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in leadership. Have there been any challenges or opportunities in your career that you have felt to be particularly significant in your leadership journey? Mm. Um, I'd say that no journey really is without its challenges. Um, And I've definitely, definitely felt I've had a few there have been, and I'd say it's probably, you know, in earlier meetings in my career, more so now, but I do remember sitting in a number of meetings where I was the only female around the table and there was a sea of over 10 men. And I, I would be lying if I said I didn't find that slightly intimidating at the time. So, but I think, you know, over the last few years, sustainability, diversity, really, yeah, diversity within sustainability has really changed. And yeah, I'd say that the you know, fair representation now but on a personal level, I'd say that, yes, I've had some very difficult individuals that I've dealt with, but I think that's true pretty much kind of across the board. And I wouldn't say that's anything you know, for any one personal uh, reason in particular. And I'm also really pleased to say that without a doubt, my encounters have been more positive than negative. 
all of my mentors and all of the people that have really championed me to date have been men and that have really kind of held me up and pushed me forward. So um, I think I've been had a very fortunate and um, lucky experience in that sense. Did you say that all of the people that have held you up and supported you so far have been men actually? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm still yet to, yeah, I haven't had a female mentor per se and actually the men, the men that I have been mentors in my life. It's interesting. Um, in the research that I've done so far for my NAWIC International Women's Day Scholarship and the survey that I've recently put out to the industry, what you've just said is quite reflected through the responses that came back, which is that sustainability in particular actually is very diverse and there is very strong representation of women in sustainability, but that actually a lot of the leadership positions are held by men in a way that doesn't represent the broader breakup of the industry. And um, it just makes me wonder if, yeah, the helping hands that you've had along the way from male leaders, whether that is indicative of the balance of leadership in the industry as well. Mm-hmm. Has that been your experience that there still are mm-hmm. a lot of male leaders? Absolutely. And I think that's a very good point, actually. It has been the, the people that have helped pull me up have been the people within CEO and manager positions. So, yes, they have been the ones that have been there before me. I um, I will say that I haven't had that, you know, being able to, in, been able to be influenced by um, female because I haven't reported to a female uh, director myself previously. But I'm glad to say that the men that have been, um, I have reported to have been very open to helping me. Now that you are yourself in that position of leadership, start to be part of that change and mentoring future leaders. Absolutely. That's a huge part of, I guess, the, the, the satisfaction I get from, and going back to the word, you know, sustainability leadership for me is all about building a platform as well. It's, you know, there's also kind of going out and speaking to clients, but very much something I'm super passionate about is um, being able to educate a team and people kind of behind me to make sure that yeah we all teach each other but there is that kind of I I really enjoy teaching and having females on our staff and support each other. So I think a good segue into the next topic which is about wellness and how to actually support employees. So in your leadership position you have been involved in implementing the employee wellness program at ADP Mm. and yeah I'm interested to hear how this kind of support can help future leaders. So I'm personally just a, a very big believer in well-being. Uh, we try and design for it every day through you know, through, through our designs and through um, impacting our spaces for clients, but also trying to be a well-being myself. Um, I think that's a really key part of that, especially during the pandemic. It's you know, <laughs> very, very important. The reason I think the Employee well, uh, Wellness Programme was important at ADP, I think it's um, bringing the conversation about well, well-being into the workplace is, is really important. The more that we normalise the fact that there's not just a home me and a work me, there's actually, it's me. And, and you know, we're talking about well-being, um, which is fairly holistic. I think that's a really important distinction to make so but most importantly you know it's so important within business context to have well-beings that work for you our business is we're services engineers we all we have is people so we are nothing without our employees and we really I'm really pleased that ADP has really recognized that as well and really taken the ball about having an employee well-being program we now have uh, on-staff nutritionists we run sports programs when we're allowed Uh, we offer fruit when we're in the office and we have webinars and talks and all sorts of things like that. So creating a culture of health, I think, has been you know, an important step forward uh, for us as ADP. And I hope 
to answer your question, hopefully about a bit helping future leaders, like I said, I hopefully encourages them to be the best version of themselves, you know, just being able to be happy and healthy and productive and want to come to work every day. But also, I think, demonstrating that they can, they too can implement initiatives and create change. I think ADP, from the company that I work for, is very open to change and suggesting initiatives. And they can really just, you know, try out their leadership and try things for size and see if they work. And if they don't, it's a very safe environment to do so. So hopefully, yeah, me demonstrating something like that, they can take it and maybe try something else as well. Yeah, I really like that, empowering people to make their own change as well. Mm-hmm. Continuing on the theme of well-being, you've said that well-being is described as the second wave of sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between well-being and the environment? Mm. Yeah, this is something again I'm I'm hugely passionate about as well. The more the more I learn about the planet, I'm a sustainability professional, but the more it comes down to we need to look after the health of the planet and that means we'll therefore look after the health of us and again we're in a pandemic you kind of we've kind of all discovered that actually health is incredibly important and actually the correlation between pandemics and um, well increasing pandemics and climate change is very strong so so yeah I believe personally that they're inextricably linked when the planet is well humans are well we have better air um, better air quality better water quality our food is nutritious uh, we can flourish. And then in turn, when we, we're better, we'll make better decisions for the planet as well. And once we look after the planet, it looks after us. And it's just this amazing feedback loop. loop. So well-being being the second wave of sustainability, um, I think for a long time, science hadn't really caught up to the things that we intrinsically knew. The fact that nature is so good for us. We just, there wasn't the studies there. And now that there really is, there's just amazing research about how much it is um, yeah, just so impactful we know we spend 90 percent of our time indoors again probably more during a pandemic as well and that has such a huge effect on us we're not designed to be indoors we're meant to be outside and having beautiful fresh air and being close to nature so I really do think that we've got now the science that really backs it up that's why I am a big believer in things like the World Building Standard. The International World Building Institute spent seven years and hundreds of thousands of dollars on putting together this best practice scientific research from all over the world and they've really pulled it into something that is best practice so understanding exactly what this looks like in terms of applying it to buildings and um, as a result you know the science that comes out the other side is that people are happier and healthier um, as a result so I really do think that it's it's never been you know, more probable. Um, I think our health is so important and again yeah tying that in and really make people try to understand the link of when we look after ourselves we'll look after our planet better and, and the, the, the symbiotic relationship that goes from there. Um, you mentioned that you started out through study in environmental policy and politics and you've also mentioned the importance of the social side of sustainability and communication. How has the perception and thinking around environment and sustainability changed over the last decade? Mm, so great. I'm no longer just a weird tree hugger, <laughs> which I was for quite a few years. Um, so, yes, without a doubt, it's significantly improved. Even I was in London and sustainability recruitment, it, you know, that wasn't mainstream then. There were only a, kind of, a number of roles that we were looking at. It's quite corporate responsibility focused and kind of a sidestep from operational health and safety. Whereas now, 
you look at the market of sustainability professionals now and there's just you know a plethora of different types of roles that are around whether that's energy or carbon accounting there's you know there is corporate responsibility there's the financial side to it there's social sustainability so I really do think that um, perception and thinking has improved um, dramatically and, and now you know even when I have conversations with people before there was a bit of a you know, a glazed look of looking, working in sustainability of like, oh yeah, okay, that seems good. And now right the way through to that's important. Um, you know, that seems like it's not going anywhere. That feels like a you know, really important di- uh, discipline to be working in. So I think not just within us as sustainability professionals, but out in the wider market, people have really understood that sustainability is around and important and here to stay. Looking at leadership more broadly now, how would you characterise sustainability and environmental leadership in the construction and property industry? I'm interested to hear your perspective on how we are tracking and where we can improve. So I think looking kind of starting quite macro, I think the bottom of the market has got a lot better. I spent, when I first got here, I spent a lot of time arguing with builders why they shouldn't put single glazing in and I don't have to do that anymore which is really great <laughs> a really good use of my time but so I think I think the perception of people really have understood you know the big leap forward to do with even basics like designing a building properly insulation double glazing passive design I think as a general just the knowledge within the construction industry has improved significantly and I'd say but going to the other side I'd say the top of, top of the market has also got exponentially better, I'd say. I'm so pleased to see that there really are some shining stars that have really pulled the market. Um, it was a pleasure to work with Fraser's when they were doing the Living Building Challenge for Burwood Brickworks and just to, to watch what they were doing. And I can, you know, single-handedly attest to the fact that, you know, once that was released into the market, I got a number of calls from uh, different types of clients that picked me up, I picked up to say, Okay, do a gap analysis right now of how far my building is from where Burwood Brickworks is. We want to know, understand exactly how we're going to get there. (laughs) Spoiler alert, it was probably quite far. But um, like it was so good to see that, you know, the um, just the the, the knowledge that that this could be done. This is what best practice now looks like and just making that quantum leap leap forward. So um, I do think generally I've pushed forward a lot but how where can we can improve um to that question i'm still a firm believer that we um are in a climate emergency and i don't feel like we're acting like we're in a climate emergency i think we're making good steady incremental gains but um it is very much kind of my role now and working with australian um and architects and, and engineers declare to really get the message out of like we need to be doing more because we have the smarts we know exactly exactly how to do it it's now just we just need the urgency to back out yeah we really do need the urgency don't we Mm, and the government support really as well but it's a different question (laughs) yeah absolutely and I think we will get on to that you were a speaker on regenerative design for human and planetary health (laughs) and I'm interested to hear from you about how the thinking has changed in the last few years and progressed towards regenerative design Mm. This has been a fascinating evolution, just the shift in the terminology, even to starting with that from sustainability, which um, we've always as sustainability professionals thought it's not good enough as a term. You know, what are we sustaining 
fundamental. If you had said that about a relationship, it would be a really average relationship. So, um, so sustainability, we always thought kind of never went far enough. And now, thank goodness, there's really been the shift towards regeneration and regenerative design. So that is really and I love the fact that it's becoming more mainstream, that people are really starting to understand that we can do so much more than causing less harm. So we're not just causing less waste and we're not just causing less emissions. We're really taking a completely different understanding of, for example, building a building, a building and understanding exactly the ways in which it can have a positive impact within yes. its in context. So like I said before, we have the technical smarts make buildings low impact we know how to make them net positive now we know how to make them in terms of energy in terms of water now with regenerative design as well we're taking it to a next level of really understanding the building the place in which it exists and understanding the social and the cultural overlays to make sure that the building is just super useful and will continue to evolve um, and flourish um, as a building within its site um, so regenerative design, yeah, it really picks up on kind of what I was saying before that we need planetary health and human health, and they're just we have to work and to understand a way in that we work with nature as opposed to against nature. And it's again, that's quite a flipping understanding because as humans, we just want to dominate. So we have to take a step back. We have to understand the ways which they can both exist. And we now, as I mentioned before, we have some great case studies of it it can be done so um i picked up on a case study of Bellwood brickworks and living building challenge um, and its application there so um i really like the fact that regenerative design as a as a concept has now been proven within the market and people have been to understand it um, and advocate for it in, and implement it as well yeah and it's great to hear that best practice is being recognized in the industry and is helping to push I guess the rest of the market forward as well. Mm-hmm. As a consultant you've worked with a number of industry groups including designers, contractors, regulatory bodies and also government as we mentioned earlier. Can you reflect on the role that each party plays in affecting sustainable outcomes in the construction industry? And what do you think needs to happen to facilitate uptake of more sustainable development by industry? Mm. So reflecting on uh, the different types of roles, um, I really do believe that yeah, everybody has a, play, you know, a huge part to play. We need to have really great designers at the front end to understand what you know, fantastic passive design looks like. I really, really believe in the power of a good contractor as well. They had to come to the party because unfortunately that's where I've seen most of the good initiatives that have been implemented at the front end be either value managed managed out or just forgotten. So um, I really do think that those kind of um, having engaged parties bring a lot to the table. But unfortunately, and again, we'll get onto this point of like, I am a firm believer in regulation. Um, I think that that has had the biggest impact in terms of shifting the market. So the recent or recent-ish introduction of National Construction Code Section J updates, I've personally seen have made the biggest transformation within the market that I've seen in my my career. I think that people have really started to understand now that they can't design glass boxes. They could find ways to, you know, loop holes around it before. So that regulation for me, in terms of capturing just the baseline minimum where you know people have nowhere to hide, they have to get captured by it. Whereas a lot of people, you know, we'll do Green Star, we can pick different parts of it, perhaps. Um, it was excellent to pushing forward this, the top end of the market, but the bulk of the majority of the rest wasn't necessarily being captured so my personal thing is regulation um, I do believe in it I think they 
probably bring the most to the table in terms of bringing forward a more sustainable construction industry. I suppose leading on from that, you are accredited through at least five different ratings tools. And I'm interested in your take on the balance between that market-driven and regulation-driven approach in um, actually getting the outcomes. Look, I yeah, I have been accredited by a number of rating tools and I it's it's the situation unfortunately I'd love to say there's no need for rating tools. You know, it's there's should just be the approach of best practice sustainability is always considered um, you know in the most effective way at the front end that's designed sensibly into uh, into a project it's always captured by a cost plan and it pops out the other side unfortunately through my experience I've never seen that really happen in a really coherent way so unfortunately I am a believer in rating tools Um, I do not only because they look at different things and obviously you have to be understanding exactly what the outcome that you wish but there are I, I believe in it purely for the reason of the backstop making sure that all the great ideas that get thought of at the front end which you know there's normally a lot of time that goes into making sure that we can understand the best sustainability opportunities for a site but um, I really do believe in sometimes the, uh, just the power of accreditation in terms of backstop to make sure that these things don't fall out when it gets to contractor and beyond. So, yeah, I think certifications do play a, you know, a very good role. I, and I, I do. And then just picking up on my previous point, but excellent regulation and the role of um, regulation driven mechanisms are, are just the most important thing in order to, to move our industry forward. Now, we are speaking in the context of COVID, and I wanted to ask you, with the construction industry potentially being a target for COVID stimulus, what opportunities do you see for how we could best utilise this investment to kind of focus a shift towards a more sustainable industry? Well, yes, there's a lot that I can say about well, the budget. There's a lot that you know has been great, <laughs> and I do... <laughs> And, you know, I can see some great initiatives that are in there. And then there's a lot that I can say that I I had tearing my hair out about why we're going for a gas-led recovery when we I literally spend most of my day trying to understand how I can get gas out of buildings, both that's in existing buildings and new buildings. And it just doesn't seem to correlate with the thinking of leaders at the moment. But do go back to my first point, I do salute, salute you know, the investments in bodies such as ARENA and the CFC. Um, I've personally seen the role of when you get money into the markets so the CFC and, for example, their seven-star Nevers Rating Mortgage Initiative has really changed the conversation from what I can see where people, where normal residents that wouldn't necessarily be interested in energy efficiency can now see that they can get better mortgages um, because of going into an energy efficient home and that shift in money from where so if people want to go into energy efficient home has shifted the market and the conversation so all developers now will only want to uh, of my clients only want to build seven star average nevers rated buildings and that is fantastic so yeah there's a lot that's in the budget i think that is good whether um, that will go far enough to be a more green industry that will pop out the other side I think there's still so much to go personally yeah and I guess speaking more aspirationally as if we were a week ago when the budget hadn't been announced yet and um, I guess noting that this will be released with a little bit of delay as well Um, but yeah what do you think is missing what could have been done because I guess with a huge 
investment of economic stimulus, there is the potential to kind of help make some of the structural changes that might be required to meet our future obligations under Paris Agreement, for example. And so I'm wondering if you had anything on your wish list that you were Mm. hoping for in the budget to help with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just having watched the budget myself, like his, that Josh Frydenberg really only mentioned kind of renewables in a very, it was probably 30 seconds, if not less. And I, I really just, I was really tearing my hair out. I do think that the opportunity to build a green recovery, as we've touched on, I'm from the UK, that is a big conversation that's happening in the UK of what they're going to do, what wind can we, um, can we implement? How can we be carbon neutral? Um, obviously, there's no such target here. There's no conversation of such target here. Um, I find it really, really frustrating that we have so much opportunity in this country. And I, albeit the, you know, the private sector is setting, set, um, stepping up to the to the pace, I do think that there could have been so much, so much more. Um, and to answer your question in particular, yeah, I, I don't think there should have been anything to do with this. There was talking a lot about carbon capture and storage. Nobody within industry really thinks that that's a viable solution. And again, talking to my principles of regenerative design, the best carbon capture and storage technology that's going is trees and agriculture and soil so how do we look after our land how do we make sure that you know we do use materials that are capturing carbon from the atmosphere we've just done an amazing amazing work in life cycle analyses so really developing the knowledge and you know as is happening within the sustainability industry of looking at embodied carbon we now know how to to get operational carbon uh, impact down in terms of we're you know, de-guessing our grid, but we're electrifying it. So it's, you know, it's going to become a lot less impact. So we're now shifting our attention to embodied carbon. And to look at that, we're looking at materiality. And with was just saying that I'm um, doing really fantastic and interesting work to do with cross-laminated timber and about how uh, cross-laminated timber acts as a carbon sink. Um, so it takes in carbon out of the atmosphere and therefore then turns into a very useful building material. I think you know, solutions that, you know, we plant trees um, you know, where we can do that. We have, um, and then you know, we sustainably cut it down to, in order to build up you know, um, our building materials. Slightly more kind of joined up thinking about that. And then also regenerative agriculture, making sure that we can still use our soils in 10, 15 years time, having not over farmed them. I think there's a big piece out of um, the, what we know um, as as the industry and I think where the government is and what it's plugging at the moment. So, yeah, still frustrating. Looking forward, as a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the development and construction industries. What are your main sustainability priorities for the next year and for the next five years? Mm. Um, So I'd say my conversations right now and for the next year, um, we're having a lot of conversations about net zero. So again, that's understanding how we can get gas out of our buildings and to fully electrify. So understand what heat pump technology is around and how we can both offset with as much solar PV as physically possible and then offsetting the rest with carbon offsets. So that to me is a really it's a good place to start for us because people understand it it's a good target for the sustainability industry it's not just making things less bad it's that we've got a good clear target so net zero um, is is where what, I'm, what we're focusing on but for me going forward again I, I am very passionate about the regenerative design space I think that we can be designing buildings to be so much better 
where um, where we thrive, where nature thrives. That's where we end up just um, in in harmony and in balance together. So, I'm interested to see that Green Star, for example, has is bringing out their new tool. One of um, their, and they've looked at things in a very different way. So all of the energy, water, waste categories that we're very used to have all been kind of thrown out the window, and now we're looking at things that are resilient as a category that nature has a whole category in itself placemaking as a category so i think there's a really good balance between nature and the social elements to it one of the um, categories that i really liked is positive and i think that resounded with me in quite a um both the personal and a professional level of like just taking the element of positivity i think aiming to be positive in all of the creations or the buildings that we create and then positive in the sense of just taking that sustainability attitude into every interaction that we can have so um i think my priorities for the next five years are yet absorbing some of those but taking it shifting and shifting forward the conversation a lot more to to be focused on um, regenerative regenerative design great and that is certainly a great aspiration to have for the next five years Circling back to the theme of female representation in environmental leadership, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think just talking to my experience, uh, the key lessons I think from from my experience are um, one is that hard work pays off. Um, you know, there have been times when I've kind of not wanted to keep going and I think you know in a number of different ways and as a sustainability professional it's always feels difficult <laughs> there's always somebody that say no somebody will always try and tell you it's too hard or too expensive or you know again that weird tree hugger kind of connotation that pops out but I would say really trying to make a difference in a field I'd say yeah, be true to your own voice I think you know it's people do want to hear it don't be afraid to to stand up and use it I think it's only when we are we get so noisy that people can't hear you can't not hear us anymore that you know we'll really start to make a difference so I think just basically don't afraid to use your voice stay passionate and stay true great advice finally I'd like to end on a question about inspiration if you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea, or an experience, what would that be? And I have to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a number, so I think I'll, I'll try and say I might pick two, but um, I think my style of sustainability leadership, I think, is not necessarily preaching all the ways in which that we should do things. I think it's more like guiding people and showing people that a better way can be done. And I think the person that really, for me, demonstrates that is, and it's probably a, a bit of an obvious answer, but I think David Attenborough, in the sense of what he's done in terms of showing people, not by preaching at them, but just showing them how beautiful the planet is. Like The planet is so beautiful and so awe-inspiring that it's so worthy of protecting so I really like what he's done and more recently it is more climate change orientated but it really is kind of just in teaching people the intrinsic value okay so to summarize that um, there's a favorite quote of mine which is uh, give a man to fish he will fish for the day teach a man to fish he'll feed fish for a lifetime but teach a man to love the ocean and they both will thrive and I really just feel that that's kind of fundamentally where we've gone wrong. We forgot to love the ocean and we forgot to love nature. And that's where so many of our environmental problems have stemmed from. So 
So um, I really do believe if I want my sustainability kind of leadership to be within that kind of context of kind of the David Attenborough style, which is just reminding people that and letting them feel it for themselves and hopefully just gaining that passion for themselves. There's only so much of my passion, I guess, I can can infuse on other people. I really want people to to show them the way to kind of demonstrate again that, again, the world is beautiful. It's worth saving and let's go and find a way, the best practice way that we can do that together. That is beautiful. And I'm so glad you shared about David Attenborough. It is an inspiration. But you said you had two. Did you want to share the other one? Oh, well, I mean, inspiring people. Like I do, I again, I'd be lying if I didn't say I know that, that Greta Thunberg has you know, mixed emotions by some people, but I cannot, I just, to be inspired by, and she was, she's 14 years old. You know, I'm, I'm much older than 14 years old. And she just has, you know, just has not stopped in terms of this is my passion. This is what I truly believe in. And she has not been afraid to you know, stop streets and stand up in United Nations conferences. I don't think I could have done that at 14 years old. And I just the change that she's had and the bravery that she's demonstrated is an inspiration to us all. But particularly me, if she can do it, <laughs> then I absolutely can do as well. Yeah, absolutely. And she's been a huge inspiration for me as well. She's really incredible. She is, so young. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your passion and your reflections on this beautiful planet. (laughs) I've really enjoyed our discussion, so thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it too. Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship supported by NAWIC. Thank you.